Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You could kind of argue that there really are two kinds of people in the world. People who play video games and people who don't. The people who don't, and I would be in that category, the people who don't, I think, have a very poor grasp of what's going on in the worlds of the people who do. And there certainly isn't just one group of people who play video games. There's just generations and generations now of people who play video games. They play them different ways. They play them for different reasons. Some of them are involved in multiplayer online games. Some people are essentially playing alone. But the more that we know about it, the more pervasive it becomes, the more we start to have questions about what's happening to the people who play a lot and whether or not these games are engineered, like so many things are engineered these days, to make you essentially want more, um, maybe even engineered so that um, your tolerance essentially increases. In other words, you... The excitement that you got out of two hours, you now have to play three hours to get something like that. So we have a lot of questions about that today. I don't know how many answers we'll get, but we've got a great guest to uh, try to provide them anyway. We're going to begin with Simon Parkin, a British writer and journalist, contributor to The New Yorker, uh, and author of the book Death by Video Game, Danger, Pleasure, and Obsession on the Virtual Frontier. Simon Parkin uh, joins us by Skype. Welcome to the show. Hi there. So, you know, in a way, you're a peculiar vessel for um, the kind of message even suggested by the name of your book, at least in the sense that you once wrote so eloquently uh, about a video game called No Man's Sky that I ran out and bought it as a Christmas present for my son. Um, so my initial experience with you has been as somebody who who wants us to appreciate the beauty, the potential, uh, the, uh, um, the ways in which video games can enlarge our worlds as opposed to shrink them. So talk about that dualism. Talk about your, you clearly have two different sets of uh, ideas and concerns about video games. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, I mean, I, I think with the book that I wrote about games, I wanted to shy away from just kind of pure advocacy uh, for the medium. Um, I, do, I consider myself a, a critic um, within video games and that involves you know looking at them coolly uh, as well as uh, championing the ones that you think are, are wonderful um and i i guess that the jump off point for the book um was was a, a spate of cases that that i read in in the foreign press of um of young males uh, typically who live in China or, or Taiwan, who were winding up dead in internet cafes after playing games for extended period of time. Um, and I was interested in that, not, you know, not only the way in which those stories re- were reported, but what was what was going on, you know, in, in biological terms to, to cause that to happen, but also in terms of um, the what were the things that video games were giving these young men and and indeed myself and many other people who play video games around the world that cause us to lose our sense of time in them and and get so fully engaged and i think when you when you kind of set your focus on a 
on on a subject like that as your way in, uh, mm. where where people are, are dying through you know engaging in uh, in this entertainment, you you naturally have to come in by um, you know <laughs> trying to I guess take a balanced view, even if um, you know through my through my work I obviously think that video games are interesting and i think the fact that billions of people are playing them every day you know makes them worthwhile of, of study and uh, and interest you know one of the things that fascinated me about this is the frequency with which the fact pattern does involve something like an internet cafe if you were to have asked me what i would have expected beforehand i would have guessed that the people, if someone was going to die by essentially playing so much of a video game or playing it so incessantly that uh, other operations of one's body begin to be in danger, I would have assumed that was somebody playing alone in his basement with nobody checking in on him uh, or, or just in an apartment where there was nobody else around to say, go take a walk or you've been doing this too long. Why does it happen? It happens in Taiwan, in, in internet cafes, and almost invariably there's people who say, oh yes, well he did that a lot and he used to just sort of put his head down on the keyboard periodically and just sleep and wake up again. He comes in here a lot and so we didn't really pay much attention. I mean, how can that be? How, why does it happen in a social environment as opposed to an isolated one? Well, I, the first thing to say is that that there there are certainly cases of of people you know westerners who have died after video game marathons you know in their in their basements or in their living rooms or bedrooms or whatever um they're more infrequent uh, than these ones um in southeast asia which is why i i focus on those but but that certainly has happened in the past um you know in cultural terms the there there are various reasons why um these cases are, you know, are geographically located in this one area. It tends to be uh, because of the rise of internet cafes, um, which uh, throughout the early 2000s and onwards became the predominant venue in which people would access the internet. Um, certainly um, in China, in terms of video game playing, uh, video game consoles such as you know the the Nintendo Wii and PlayStation, or that generation of video game hardware w was actually banned it was made illegal in the early 2000s in china uh, whereas pc games and mobile phone games weren't so for an entire generation the way in which you would play video games would be in local internet cafes where the the internet speeds were, were very fast and where the the cost of um logging onto the internet was very cheap you you pay by the hour or you know, by the half day uh, for, for very small sums of money that uh, you know teenagers could afford um so that's the reason why you have vast numbers of people um, sitting often for many hours at a time in, in internet cafes. And then when you throw into that mix the fact that uh, people are very often smoking heavily, they might be um, drinking lots of caffeine and slowly becoming dehydrated, uh, and then also you've got the humidity in the air, then all of these factors combine with the fact that you're um, sitting down for a long period of time to you know, thicken the blood, and if you have pre-existing heart conditions, then uh, it can it can bring those on. So, so I mean, those are the kind of reasons and conditions why why they're um, it, it tends to be localized in these these countries. Um, you've kind of uh, answered part of this question just now, but uh, another thing that I had wondered is, I mean, there are people who have just sort of crap jobs where they have to sit at computers for incredibly long periods of time with not without many breaks. Um, I, I mean, I, it would be a horrible job and I think ultimately uh, would contribute to maybe a slow decline in your health. 
but people don't die from that. So is the difference some of the things you just mentioned? I mean, things like, for example, smoking and ingesting huge amounts of caffeine? Well, uh, people do die uh, through that. The, the Japanese have a term for it, uh, Kuroshi, Kuroshi yeah. which uh, which means uh, death by overwork. Um, and again, that, that, that's slightly culturally specific to Japan um, in that uh, they have a culture of, of, you know, working very long hours, you know, not leaving to go home before your boss. Um, I've got I've got friends who work in Japan and in salaryman jobs. And you know, they often talk about the fact that you, you can just be sat at your desk kind of twiddling your thumbs, waiting for your boss to go home, you know, just kind of killing time, really, uh, without doing much, just because culturally you can't be seen to to go home early. Um, so so, yes, de- death by overwork is is. Um, the the flip side of the the death by play um coin here um but you know having said that i think there is something unique to video games that if you are at a stage of your life where you have um you know great expanses of free time um there's something compelling about the way in which video games are designed, particularly contemporary ones, more recent ones, where they've been so pristinely engineered to hold your attention and to reduce the number of uh, opportunities that you have to step away from the game, um, that that it's it's very possible to to lose yourself in in a game for much longer than you might in a good novel or even in a Netflix television series. Yeah, we should talk a little bit about that. That I mean, obviously for people... Well, actually, let's back up and say this. I was going to wait for the second segment to say this, but I would guess that this is a two-way street. In other words, the games have certain qualities to them that may contribute to obsession and addiction, but they don't do that to everybody. You know, that that There probably is a predisposition on some people's part, right? Some people, I mean, we shouldn't be sitting here suggesting that this could happen to anybody. I'm guessing there are people who are predisposed to acquire an addiction like this one. Well, I would be wary of using the term uh, addiction. Um, okay, sorry spe- that. Precisely that one, but, um, you know, because it carries quite specific medical meanings. Um, but yes, I, I think there probably are different personality types or you know predispositions. You know, certain people who are more likely to give themselves to a game to become absorbed in it um, in a in a in a holistic way than others perhaps but you know the video games in in general as, as you said in your introduction is such a broad church now there's a video game for for every kind of interest you know if it's uh, you know from from the the type of person you is interested in doing cryptic crosswords all the way through to you know the person who's very interested in contact sports you know there's a video game that that meets all of those needs you know to, from strategy to music games to um you know ones that test your your rhythm and um your reaction times and uh, so i think it's you know it would be rare to find a person who sat down with an open mind to uh, play a range of video games who wasn't able to find a genre you know to which they were attracted um you know in, in a way obviously the the thing that creates apparel is also a thing that can create merit i mean the the notion of escape and escapism i mean we all do various things that are escapist. I like to watch Game of Thrones. I really look forward every week to Game of Thrones. Um, You know, I'm excited when it's on. I like to think about it afterwards. I'll listen to a podcast about it. Um, and, And you've written about, in your own life, using 
video games to get through a, a difficult period. You wrote once about a, a time when your family was in a terrible uh, moment uh, of upheaval, uh, and you said that your mind was drifting towards Midgar, the steampunk capital of Final Fantasy VII, the video game to which I'd retreated each day in search of routine and direction when the framework of my life seemed to be collapsing. So that's you're using video games there as an example of, I think, a, a, at least a healthy or at least helpful retreat from reality. Is that fair? Yes, uh, that is fair. Um, video games and, and video games, by definition, are wonderfully fair. Um, that's one of their, their beauties um, in that they, they present a, a, a vision of a metaphor for the world that can be understood and ordered and conquered. Um, and, you know, if you, if you give your time and your effort to a video game, then the rules of the game will will often, you know, ensure that you are repaid in kind for that for that effort. Um, you know, if you spend a lot of time with a game, your character will progress and level up, and you, know, you will almost always be able to overcome the the obstacles that are put in front of you with with some effort and dedication. Um, those things are, are often not true in the real world. You know, particularly I think for for young people at, at this moment in time, you know, for whom house ownership is you know a distant dream perhaps uh, or or you know a career for life is something that uh, their their parents and grandparents could look forward to but maybe they they couldn't and you know video games do offer this very um, attractive compelling environment um, where where they they're essentially just and fair um, and so when the landscape of of your your life outside of a game is you know crumbling or you're, you're encountering difficulties or you've got relationship difficulties or whatever it is um, it can be very appealing to to jump into the fiction of a game where the the rules are adhered to and uh, there's there's comfort in that um, and I think that's probably true as well you know as, as you allude to in, in other types of fiction um, but there's something about video games where you're an active participant in the drama in the story and you have some agency um, over it and um, you know that that's that's deeply satisfying on this elemental level whereby you're you're part of the story and you're seeing your effort uh, repaid in kind and um, yeah that's that's tremendously alluring um but we should describe one of the scenarios that you depict uh, we'll just choose one. Well, I, I, there's one a reason I choose this one. Uh, you write, when the paramedics lifted wrong you from his chair, his rictus stiffened hands remained in place as if clawed atop an invisible mouse and keyboard, like the pulp de- detective thriller in which the lifeless hand points towards some critical clue. Wrong you's final pose appeared to incriminate his killer. You's story is unusual but not unique. On July 13, 2012, another young man, 13-year-old, uh, Chuang Cheng Feng was found dead in his chair at a different Taiwanese internet cafe. Feng, a five foot five Taekwondo champion, had settled down to play the online game Diablo 3. After a friend he was supposed to meet had failed to show up, he played the game to pass the time, 10 hours of uninterrupted questing. And then you describe him collapsing, his mouth foaming. So this latter person, you know, one of the, well, I think one of the stereotypes people have is a uh, you know, a, a 400-pound, highly unathletic person uh, not getting much fresh air and exercise and not eating very well, uh, playing these games and collapsing. This is a Taekwondo champion, right? This is somebody who actually had some kind of, you know, outside physical exercise regime. So apparently that doesn't exempt you from the physical hazards of this? 
No, that's true. I, I, I mean, you're right. That is the the cliche of the of the video game player. Um, but it, it's highly out of date. Um, you know, even I think nearly 10 years ago, the BBC did a study in the UK and found that 100% of um, of teenagers you know, under the age of 18 played video games in, in the UK. So um, it, it, there, everyone plays video games, whether it be you know on your phone or or playing solitaire at your desk or or on on the the latest video game consoles. So. Um, yeah, the idea that there's a particular body type or gender or anything like that who who is you know the predominant um, audience for video games is is either a, you know a hangover from um, the way in which video games were presented in the 90s or or a marketing ploy to sell games to a certain certain demographic. So um, yes, I think it's true you you'll have unhealthy people who play games, uh, but also um, but also athletic people as well. Um, you know, and I think people who are interested interested in sports or in board games uh, and you know other other kind of uh, competitive challenges like that are, are probably more likely to to also be video game players because um, you know that's that's something that uh, they're attracted to um, having said all of that in in uh, feng's case um, i spoke to his his doctor um, um, who, who actually saw him um, before his his death, and um, he had a pre-existing heart condition. Um, so while while he was athletic and, and you know involved in sports, there were there were kind of other circumstances in, involved for, for him in, in his particular case. All right, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to add one more voice to this conversation. Simon's going to stay with us, um, and we'll be back. All right, uh, here we come. We're back. We're talking about video games and probably maybe specifically about too much video games, obsessive use of video games. We're talking with Simon Parkin, British writer and journalist, contributor for The New Yorker, and author of the book Death by Video Game, Danger, Pleasure, and Obsession on the Virtual Frontline. Uh, joining us now is Adam Alter, Associate Professor of Marketing at New York University's Stern School of Business and the author of the New York Times bestselling Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology in the Business of Keeping us hooked. So, Adam Alter, welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me on the show, Colin. So, we've been talking to Simon about w what can happen in the very worst case scenario uh, and the slightly less worst case scenarios, although I want to talk about those a little bit more as well. But we need to talk a little bit more about whether or not some of these games are designed to facilitate an obsessive playing uh, of them. Are the games engineered? in such a way as to make us not want to stop playing them? Well, they're designed to be as engaging as possible. And the best way to measure how engaging they are is to track how long users are playing, how many times they return to missions, things like that. So what will often happen is the producers of these games will release different versions to different players, and they'll monitor which versions are, are harder for people to stop playing. So they'll look at session times, returning to the game, things like that. and. Um, They'll iterate that process over and over again. So they'll, they'll say have two versions, say there'll be a mission, they'll have one version where you have to save someone, another version where you have to find an artifact. They'll find out that people are much more engaged by the mission of saving someone, and so then they'll do away with the artifact searching mission, 
and they'll then take the the mission where you have to save someone and they'll create two versions of that one where the person you're saving is a man and one where the person you're saving is a woman and so on and they'll do that you know over several generations to the point where the version that arrives on your screen when you're playing the game is the sort of weaponized 10th generation version and so it's been evolved to be as hard to resist as possible which does suggest that by design these games are hard to resist it's also i think relatively easy to well simon doesn't want me to use the word addict so i'm going to try to avoid it but i think we have obsessive tendencies all of us i want to talk a little bit later about whether some of us have more obsessive tendencies or are more prone or predisposed than others but i mean we all have this i went to a well-known university not far from here uh, in a really long time ago. So sometime or maybe around 1974 or 1975, they were working on these incredibly primitive versions of computer games. They were, you know, they were really, they didn't have any graphics or anything like that, but it was based on Star Trek. And I enrolled as an experimental subject in whatever department was working on them. And it just turned out I wasn't very good. And I, the computer got smarter than me pretty fast. And so I wasn't interesting to the computer. I wasn't interesting to the experimenters. And I found myself engaging in, you know, what would seem like drug-seeking behavior pretty quickly. I was like, well, please, let me play one more time, please. Uh, so, Adam, I, I, there's something about us, right? It's not that hard to get us uh, uh, really, really uh, desirous of repeat experiences with something like this. Yeah, I mean, there are certain experiences that I think humans just, by virtue of the way we think, the way we interact with the world, find very hard to to ignore or to resist. And, and one really good example of that is the game. Any mechanics where you have a, a quest, you have a goal at the end of that quest, you have mixed feedback along the way, that's just a, a general sort of framework that I think humans engage with very strongly. And that's, that underlies all games. You know, that underlies uh, even the very basic text-based primitive games from the 70s that you're describing. But the versions that we play now are, are that substance. But then overlaid over that is this incredibly powerful network of different features that, that amplify those effects. So that's what these, these companies are doing now, is they've, they've found a way to take what was, what was engaging back then in the 70s and just basically turn it up to a whole new level so that it's very hard for people to resist almost universally. I don't think there is necessarily a type of person who finds games hard to resist. I think it's just something basic about being human. Um, Simon Parkin, one term that you introduce us to via, I think, a friend of yours uh, is chronoslip. Tell us what chronoslip is. Um, yes. So it's a, it's a term that essentially tries to describe that sense of, of losing losing time. Uh, tempus fugit, I guess you'd say, the, the Romans would say, um, you know, time flies when you're, especially when you're having fun. And um, in video games, that, um, that seems to be, I would say, in some way more amplified than even with a good book or, or a good TV series or even a, you know, particularly engaging crossword. Um, partly, I think that's because when you play a game, your brain starts to adapt to the almost the time signature of the game itself. So, you know, if you're if you're trying to solve a puzzle in a game, um, your patience gets worn out, and then you successfully complete the puzzle, and your store of patience is is restored again. Uh, or if you're you know playing a, a video game mission and it, it occurs through the night, and then you complete the mission, and then you're on to the next day. And so. Kind of video games warp and stretch and condense time in this way that uh, that can be yeah a little bit bewildering or, or cause you to to lose your sense uh, more quickly I would say than in other media. 
So, Adam, there are there's another group of people. I mean, there are probably lots of groups of people, but there's another group of people who maybe before the dawn of video games were very interested in some of the phenomena we're talking about. They're the other gaming industry, the gambling industry. And, and we know that increasingly certain Kino games are engineered in a way to have some of the digital bells and whistles and uh, rewards that, that kind of are, that are helpful in, in video games. But to top it off, they keep you involved by occasionally paying you, by paying out money. We know that casinos are engineered to to facilitate what Simon calls chronoslip, right? There are no clocks. The whole idea is the longer that we can keep you in this altered environment playing a slot machine, the more money we will take away from you on balance. Um, so since, for the most part, although we can get into this a little bit, but since for the most part, most people who play online games aren't getting little payouts of money, what are they getting little payouts of? Uh, they're getting positive feedback in the form of small wins, unpredictable wins, which, as far as the brain is concerned, is, is very much like getting small payouts or, or even large payouts, depending on the, the nature of the win. So I, I think you're right to say that before video games were, were produced in this way, casinos were already getting quite sophisticated and the slot machines were becoming more sophisticated. And so I think the gaming industry has learned a lot from from casino design and from slot machine design. And a lot of the same mechanics are used in in the design of games. And that's certainly true about mixed feedback, which is is the, the biggest one, that playing a lot of games is a lot like playing a slot machine where Every now and again, there'll be a big win. Sometimes there'll be a smaller win, and, and much of the time, there'll be no win at all. And it's, it's those, those punctuated wins that are so important because uh, guaranteed wins become boring very quickly. And, and game developers obviously know that, among the many other things they know that keep people engaged. So I, I think you don't, you don't need money, um, but you, you know, there are even free games online. In the U.S., you can't really gamble online. Um, but a lot of people will play the free versions of slot machines because the the just the vision of seeing these five symbols line up and the ding that comes from the machine is enough to inspire a, a small pleasure response. You know, I want to ask both of you about this. So a lot of my, quote, information, unquote, about this topic comes from uh, last year's novel, The Knicks by Nathan Hill, which is kind of a hit novel last year in which one of the characters was somebody who was very, very active in the world of multiplayer online gaming and had clearly become addicted to it. It had affected his finances. He wasn't really earning money anymore. He was just kind of leveraging his mortgage to keep playing. His health was deteriorating, wasn't uh, taking the right kind of nutrition. I mean, in a way, he looked like somebody running up to to uh, one of the dire conclusions in in Simon Parkin's uh, book, um, but I thought was what was very significant was the community aspect of this too. And so I'm going to ask both of you about this. But Simon, I'll start with you. That that for for this guy, it was not simply sitting alone in his house playing this game, which he definitely was doing. But the fact that he was heavily involved with teams who were uh, people who were trying to. Uh, achieve some objective in some fantasy elfscape and who depended on him as a especially good player or maybe even leader. So is, the, is there a communitarian aspect of this, Simon, that, is in, uh, that increases the seduction? Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, again, here video games are just reflecting the way that humans uh, behave and, and react outside of the, the, the fiction. Um, but it, it's certainly true that in online games, once you layer over community aspects and, you know, all of the things like responsibility to the rest of your team, you know, the shared desire to, to win, to conquer, you know, all of that kicks in the same things that, that people feel in team sports or, or even in the, in the, in the workplace when they're working together towards a common goal. Um, 
And, uh, you know, certainly in my career, I've interviewed many people who have spent uh, thousands of hours playing games, you know, probably particularly because of the relationships that they formed within them. Uh, and there are many stories from, you know, the past few decades of people finding their life partners, you know, in some fantasy game or in, a, you know, on a distant planet in a spaceship game. And uh, so the yes, the, the relationships that are formed in these games are, are earnest and they're genuine and authentic and exactly the same as, as uh, the ones that we form outside of uh, video game worlds. And yes, so when designers skillfully add in those aspects to their game designs, it, it does you know, uh, amplify the effects, uh, as we were saying earlier. And um, Adam, in the same book, one of the really chilling scenes uh, does involve this guy who uh, he, he he does a lot of things where he has to sort of unlock certain reward systems in these games, almost as a prerequisite to playing the real game. He has to get his avatar fitted out with all kinds of special things that will make him a better avatar. Uh, and having done that uh, and having had like a six shot latte uh, and a burrito, he can't go to sleep. And I mean, reading from the book, um, he has no other choice but to fire up the computers once more and check the West Coast servers and go on another raid. Then he joins the Australian servers hours later and attacks the dragon again. Then by 4 a.m., the hardcore Japanese players come online, which is always a windfall, and he teams up with these guys and kills the dragon a couple of more times and killing, until killing the dragon no longer feels triumphant, but rather routine and ordinary and maybe a little tedious. But Adam, this is a description of a real behavior, right? The notion that there's no you know, there's no nine to five in this world. There's no particular off switch. There's people playing together all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. Many of the games involve guilds. So players from all over the world will band together to complete missions as a sort of team. And and that's a big part of the social element that um, not only is it about friendship, but it's also about duty and honor. And it takes on a lot of the properties of war where, you know, you may have uh, a guild that's made up of someone from New York, someone from LA, someone from Tokyo, someone from Copenhagen, and, and these people are all living in different time zones, and someone's awake all the time, which means everyone has to be awake all the time, because that's your duty. If you're going to go on a mission, you don't want to leave anyone behind, and you don't want to not be there to support your guild, and so that ends up eating into the sleeping time of, of all the players, and I think that's one of the biggest consequences, and one of the most dangerous is just widespread chronic sleep deprivation among the players. So I want to ask both of you about this, uh, and Simon, again, I'll start with you. I mean, obviously, an industry that starts to make a lot of its customers sick or bankrupt or dysfunctional or withdrawn from their, their real lives and, and in a very small group of cases makes them wind up dead is an industry that might have kind of a problem, uh, uh, particularly down the road. You wouldn't want to see this particular curve on a graph start going up and up and up. So does the industry have some kind of interest in maybe figuring out how to do stopping cues or are they doing anything about this? I guess that's my first question, Simon. There, there have been some cases. Um, Nintendo's hugely popular Wii system that came out uh, in the in the mid to late 2000s uh, was it would interrupt play sessions every now and again with a message of I think it was an illustration of an open window um, with the the curtains billowing and a message that said you've been playing for a while why not take a break um, so you know at that time Nintendo obviously felt some kind of duty to remind players about the great outdoors and maybe suggest that they do something else um, certainly Netflix does a similar thing you know if you if you've watched three episodes of a show, 
in a row, it will say, are you still actually there? Uh, it's not, not so much saying, why don't you go and do something else? But it's, it's just checking in. Um, that, that said, Nintendo's latest system, the Switch, doesn't do that. Um, and I don't think, I can't really think of any other examples of um, of online games, you know, which are the ones that um, particularly encourage players to, to play for very extended periods of time and where the designers try to eliminate these natural uh, jumping off points. Um, I can't think of any that, that kind of interrupt play with a, with a message suggesting that uh, players take a break. Um, I, you know, just to add to that, I wouldn't want to overstate the um, the number of, of these kind of deadly cases or even, right. you know, the, the number of cases where people are, you know, finding aspects to their, their video game hobby that are negatively impacting their lives in, in major ways. You know, I think it's important to remember that, that every day millions of people around the world play video games. Most people under the age of 40 have grown up with video games as you know, part of their entertainment diet, uh, and are, and are able to have a have a healthy relationship with them in the same way that you might do with uh, playing Sudoku or something like that. But um, I'm going to stay with you for a second, Simon. Uh, granting all that, if there's enough of a problem to warrant your writing a book about it, uh, another group of people who could address this would be the gaming community themselves. You know, before we came on the air, you and I were talking a little bit about Gamergate, and we're probably not going to have time to have an extended conversation about that. But one thing we learned from Gamergate was there's a whole bunch of people who are who were for that particular purpose, for the purpose of repudiating, repudiating what they perceive to be unfair liberal and feminist critiques uh, of them and their world, and whatever else Gabergate was about, they were able to organize and talk to one another. But it seems as though if there is any kind of community like that, that hears signals and sends signals back to the outside world, it, it's its primary message is kind of get the F out of my life. Don't bother us. Don't critique us. Don't meddle us, meddle in our lives. Is the gaming community that, as you understand it, able to, I don't know, introduce healthy information to one another? I mean, could they do the equivalent of, wow, it seems like we've all been playing this particular game for six hours now. Should we take a break? Um. <laughs> uh, there, there's a lot there. I think. I think in terms of the responsibility of you know for how long are you going to play a game, the the natural changes that happen in our lives as we as we grow older and you know get responsibilities and we no longer have these you know, panoramic summer holidays that you have when you're when you're a student and uh, you you know if you want to pay rent on your own place then you need to get a job and you know, these things naturally come in to mean that you know you could, after a certain age you can't really stay up to four o'clock in the morning every night playing video games and so i think there's a certain level of just natural self-correction that happens in terms of um how you how you spend your time on on your hobbies um i think yes i'd like to think that if people if someone clearly has a problem with a with an online game where their you know the uh, the infrastructure of their life is starting to crumble because of their dedication to this to this one pursuit then uh, they would have people around them that would be able to um you know steer them away from that and uh, there are certainly s stories of these uh, of clinics around i think there's a couple in the US that that deal with um you know internet um uh, I hesitate to use the word, but addiction or you know an unhealthy relationship with with um, with the internet or with video games. So uh, yeah, in the most extreme cases, um, 
I think there are people there to provide support and maybe look at what is the underlying reason for why you're um, you know, throwing yourself so wholeheartedly into this form of escapism, which, you know, I think could happen. It's not unique to video games. It could happen in, in any number of avenue, entertainment avenues. Um, so there's that. In terms of the, the broader question about... Um, you know, the cultural critique. Um, I think in the past few years, the the, the tools that, by which people, the creators are able to make video games have become democratized. So it's now much easier for um, a, for anyone to download some software and use that to, to make their own game. And because of that, whereas in the past, you know, before probably 2005, you'd have to you'd have to have a company. You'd have to spend huge amounts of money on the equipment that enables you to build video games. It meant that we were only seeing particular kinds of worldviews and particular kinds of people that had the privilege with which to make video games. And in the last decade, that's changed. Uh, so we're getting all kinds of new voices coming in, making games with, which are, you know are laser focused on specific outlooks and perspectives. Uh, and through that, we, we, we're seeing much more diversity in the kinds of games that are being made and the kinds of stories that are being told through games. Because, of course, not all games are you know, sports like, um, you know, fantasy quests. There's a huge range of different game types. And I think through that natural creative um, diversity, um, people are being challenged, perhaps, um, with their worldview, but also being exposed to different points of views. And that surely is, is a good thing. All right, so very quickly here, we've got to go to the, our final segment here where we talk about um, treatment, as it were. But before we do, Adam, um, so this past Christmas, the person who lives in the same house that I live in, the person I share my life with, gave me a present, and it's sitting on my wrist right now, and it, uh, it it's called a Fitbit, and it tells me all kinds of things that I've done every day. And then after a while, I started exhibiting some behaviors not witnessed in me before, including announcing that I've just gotten a hot air balloon, which reflects the number of, uh, of stairs, stairs I've climbed, at least theoretically, according to the Fitbit. And I started doing things essentially to propitiate the Fitbit. I started announcing to uh, her that I would be like taking a walk right now at 11 o'clock at night so I could get 4,000 more steps, you know, and I, I started obeying this thing on my wrist. Which is what you call gamification, right? There's lots of things in our lives that work the way that we've talked about video games working. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think a lot of devices that uh, seek to capture our attention and energy use goals to, to motivate us and drive us. And the, the Fitbit is a great example of that, obviously. The, the initial goal seems to be a sort of default of 10,000 steps in a day. And very quickly, as happens with so many goals, once it becomes easy to attain, you escalate. And so you go then to 12,000 steps and then perhaps 14. Uh, and and that's, that's common. That's a, a big feature of, uh, of how we engage with video games, with Fitbits, um, with all sorts of other experiences, accumulating friends on Facebook and followers on Twitter and Instagram and so on. It's, it's baked into a lot of these experiences. And that, that process of gamification, of turning what might otherwise not be a game into a game and Im imbuing it with lots of game elements is a good way to engage people. And so I think a lot of what we do now on screens and online has some or, or many elements of games built into it. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We want to thank Simon Parkin so much uh, for staying with us. He's a writer for The New Yorker. His book is Death by Video Game. Adam Alter will still be with us after this. We're also going to talk to somebody who's looking at that whole question of what you do with somebody, what you do for somebody who's maybe spending a little bit too much time on this uh, pastime. 
Fitbit and my Xbox are fighting over control over my body. Down, boy, down! Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish is addicted to Pong. The part of Bill Curry was played by Adam Sandler. On tomorrow's show, what we can learn from a 60-year Russian experiment to breed domesticated foxes. And now, back to Colin. Okay, our uh, third and final segment. This has been a really interesting show, by the way, created by our producer, uh, Josh Nalea. Um, our third and final segment we want to talk about, well, we're going to call it addiction. Simon Parkin, who is now departed, doesn't like that term, but um, other people do. Uh, so Adam Alter is still with us, associate professor of marketing at New York University's Stern School of Business and author of the New York Times bestselling Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. Hillary Cash, co-founder and chief clinical officer of the Re- Start Center for Digital Technology Sustainability, specializing in internet and video game addiction, uh, is now joining us. So I've now said that, the A word, a bunch of different times. Um, Hillary Cash, we know that the uh, American Psychological Association at least regards the notion of uh, of gaming addiction, uh, of online internet gaming addiction, as, uh, I think, a subject meriting further study or whatever they call it before they put it in the DSM. How comfortable are you using a word like addiction to talk about gaming? I'm quite comfortable with it because I understand it as a neurological process um, that can be, and that neurological process can happen either through the ingestion of chemicals or through behaviors, certain behaviors that are very pleasurable to us. So I'm comfortable with it, but I certainly am aware that there are many, many people who aren't. And if people are willing to just call it problematic behavior, it's like, I'm okay with that, as long as they understand and take it seriously and do what they need to do to get well. So as you're running into people who are seeking help with this problem or who are being urged to seek help with this problem, who are they? Who's the typical client? Our typical clients are male. Uh, for eight years, we've had an adult program, and they're typically 18 to 28. We've just opened an adolescent program, 13 up to 18, and uh, that is, uh, we, we screen out women, uh, girls, for that one. Uh, but in the adult program, we've been open eight years, and we've had seven women come through. So these are typically uh, bright uh bright young men who have great capacity in their lives to do all kinds of things, but they've really gotten sucked down that rabbit hole uh, with video games. They're mostly gamers. Occasionally we get somebody who's an info junkie uh, or, you know, some other aspect of the Internet has, has gotten them hooked. But most of them are gamers, and that's really where they built their identities. Um, with a typical, well, there's no such thing. With with, with uh, and the addiction narratives that we're probably more familiar with that involve, say, drugs and alcohol. You know, the typical narrative is that you seek treatment when you've hit quote unquote a bottom, and the bottom is usually something pretty extreme. You've lost your family because of it. You lost your job. You've been arrested. It's stuff like that. With this population, I'm wondering how do they 
decide? What's their bottom? How do how do they decide that? Oh no, I've got to do something about this. I've got a problem. Well, this question actually really highlights what I'm finding quite fascinating in in uh, the different populations. On the one hand, working with adolescents. On the other hand, the adults. The adults almost universally have experienced some pretty serious consequences, usually in the form of failing out of college, and. These, again, are very bright. Many of them had scholarships, uh, and all of that is now lost. Their parents have spent many thousands of dollars that have just gone down the drain. So they've experienced some negative consequences. That really puts their lives in perspective and means that, speaking generally, they are less in denial about the need for change than our adolescents who haven't yet experienced those kinds of serious consequences, they're coming to us because their families are really worried. Um, I'm going to go back to Adam Alter for a second, because uh, I do want to just pursue this for one moment anyway. That, you know, obviously we're also familiar with symptoms that we associate with addiction, and they can be preoccupation. I mean, you're starting to really think about the next time you get to do it, whatever it is, withdrawal symptoms, you know, irritability, mood, mood problems. If you don't get to do whatever it is, uh, Adam, you talked in the previous segment about tolerance. Uh, it takes a little bit more of whatever it is to make you happy uh, or to make you feel like you've got your your dose, um, trouble stopping, giving up other activities, covering up the activities that you're engaged in, risking relationships and other kinds of opportunities. I mean, all of that does seem to fit in here. Is it the case that maybe what's happened is that our understanding of addiction hasn't caught up with the digital and electronic part of addiction? Yeah, I think so. It, it is purely a definitional question. And as far as I'm concerned, as, uh, as Hillary said, I, I think uh, behaviors can absolutely satisfy the definition, which for me is just a, an experience that people return to obsessively over and over again, uh, that in the short term brings them some measure of pleasure, but in the long term has negative consequences on one of several dimensions. It could be physical, uh, psychological, social, financial, and uh, I, I think that definition captures substance abuse, but just as easily and just as well captures um, abuse of video games, the Internet, uh, Fitbits, exercise, work, all sorts of behaviors. So I, I have no problem using the definition, but, but again, I agree with Hillary that, um, you know, I think a lot of people get caught up in this definitional debate where, to me, the, the, the problems are pretty clear, whether you call them problems related to addiction or not. Uh, but I think addiction is a perfect label for what's going on. Adam, I can stop using my Fitbit anytime I want to. <laughs> anyway, um, so Hillary, uh, we're running out of time here, but uh, obviously the next wave is already here. It's called virtual reality. I assume, once again, this has a chance to a possibility of squaring or cubing or increasing even more exponentially the problem that we're talking about right now. Yes, I think that's true because you know, the more immersive the experience is, the the more addictive it is. And so virtual reality is, you know, to date, the most immersive experience people can have. And But Adam, also, I mean, look, in virtual reality, not only could I do all the things that we're talking about right now, but I suppose... I could have virtual sex with an elf queen or something if I'd done the requisite things to win the game up to that point, right? You're going to be able to have a kind of experience that, that, that really goes pretty far beyond what I would assume the experience you have playing a normal video game. 
Yeah, I think the menu of options, the things you could do with virtual reality experiences are, I mean, it's a very long menu. And I, I think that means that at any moment in time, you could do exactly what it, what you want to be doing. And so you're constantly, once once virtual reality goes mainstream, you'll constantly be faced with the question of whether to live and exist in the real offline world with all its imperfections and complexities, or in this virtual world that's essentially perfect and is exactly what you want at any moment in time. Um, Hillary, but you I, go ahead. Yeah, could go I ahead. jump in with sure. a comment, which is that it's so important to understand also that when people become addicted in, to their uh, an online reality, and they are away from all of the things that actually we need as human beings to be healthy, which includes lots of face-to-face -face social contact. It includes physical activity, enough sleep, good eating, uh, and, and many more things. People who spend their time, who, who turn their backs on that and instead really invest themselves to the exclusion of other things, actually become profoundly depressed over time. And that is just something that's really important for people to understand. They, all, almost all of our clients are profoundly depressed and anxious when they come to us. Well, uh, we have to stop uh, here, unfortunately. This is uh, something worth talking about uh, a lot more, and I don't think it's the only time that we will visit this topic. But right now, I want to thank very much uh, everybody who helped out on today's show, especially our producer, uh, Josh Nilea. Thanks also to Adam Alter and Hillary Cash. I have to uh, use my Fitbit to uh, get in shape to have virtual reality sex with an elf queen. Not that I'm really thinking about doing that. No, no, not at all. No. No.